This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. past the hour of 10 o'clock. As is customary on a Thursday, we enter into a leadership dialogue and we thought, you know, what would be appropriate for the start of the new year, the start of the academic year, and um, the start of the leap year, right? Uh, A a year with an extra day, uh, a year that's said to be mystical and different. So shouldn't we use all of these issues in astronomy, science, the newness of the year to do things differently? And so our conversation today is with Professor Alistair McGuena, the country director of Google South Africa. Well, why him, you may wonder? Well, because he's a scientist, he's a techie, and he's running one of the biggest um, new tech businesses in the world in the Southern African region. This is the one place through their many programs where young people can be um, skilled for the future world of work. This is the one organization where we can see 4IR in action. And this is the one place where the new technologies such as AI and regenerative AI chat gpt and all of those new tools uh, that advance uh, tech are being um, used uh, for further innovation and so for young people thinking to themselves what could the world look like tomorrow and how could i get myself ready then i think hearing from google south africa uh, might be something that helps you navigate and chart a course forward now for his sins, Professor Alistair uh, Mugwena, a seasoned marketing and advertising professional, has a PhD in business, an MBA. Uh, he's a chartered marketer, so a high industry level uh, qualification with peerage, over 25 years of corporate experience. And in his role as the country director, is overseeing the commercial operations of uh, Google in Southern Africa to bring together an ecosystem of customers. We are all Google users, social partners, um, and those who are very hands-on, tactile techies who love to experiment with new software information and uh, can be part of uh, the innovation ecosystem, what we call intelligent systems. So it's all about bridging the digital divide. He's also an extraordinary professor of practice at the, is it the Northwest? Is that what NWU, Northwest uh, University's Business School, and a board member of the Institute for Intelligence Systems. And he is today our leadership dialogue and no less uh, somebody who in 2019 was ranked best advertising and marketing leader and in 2017, most admired agency leader. So a leader par excellence. Professor Mugwena, good morning. Good morning, Lorato, and good morning to the, all the Power FM listeners. Thank you so much for coming through. So curved ball. Uh, I just found out today that we call it Google, but that's not the original name. I'm not even sure if it's the formal name. Well, it is now as a registered business. So, but So what is the actual name of Google? If we 
casually called it Google until they sort of had to rebrand it as such. So, yeah, I actually had to scratch my head and think back. Um, you know, Google was started by two guys who were doing their PhDs at Stanford, yeah. uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And uh, they came up with this with this platform and they called it Backrub before they called it Google. Backrub. Um, Backrub, yeah. How awkward. Okay. <laughs> they called it that because um, it analyzed the web's backlinks to understand how important a website was ah. and what other sites, um, you know, are related to it and so on. And I think how the idea was conceived was they said, what if? And you'll see the phrase, what if, comes before all of Google's innovations. And mm. and, and, and the what if question that they asked was, what if we indexed all the world world's websites and brought them together yeah. and made them discoverable when somebody enters a search query? So the idea was to collect the world's information, organize it, make it universally accessible and helpful. And that is Google's mission up to today. Okay, so from Backrub, studying those Backlinks, founded on the premise, what if, explore solutions, collate it all into one portal, and what if you make a success of it? Absolutely. And I think, <laughs> and I think if you look at even things like um, how Google Search also came about, it was about what if we, we connected people to information that they mm. need, you know? Mm. And even YouTube, it was about what if we created a platform where people could share what they know, whether it's entertainment, education. I mean, we remember through yeah. through COVID and through lockdown, a lot of people went onto YouTube to learn how to make things like pineapple beer, you know, how yeah. to survive COVID. So, so it's always about how do we innovate to make the world a better place? Yeah. How do we become much more helpful through technology? Yeah, absolutely. I do love, I think it was Maya Angelou. Everybody knows she's like my eternal sage. But I think she says, you know, when people are on the precipice of a cliff, the first question is, what if I fall? And then she says, but what if you fly? Absolutely. And that's a mindset issue. Yeah. The yeah. glass half empty, half full. What if things really go well? Absolutely. Even if they could go badly. And, and it seems to me that you embrace that mindset. Yeah. In fact, I always talk about two predominant mindsets in everything that we do. Like when you wake up, uh, you have choices to make. You make choices about how you show up. And the one choice is avoiding losing mentality, which is putting out fires, which is thinking that the world is not a good place. The world is defined by scarcity. There isn't enough to go around. Mm. So how do I survive? How do I optimize mm. um, in a difficult world? That's that's avoiding losing mentality. Mm. The other choice that you have, because, you know, there's two sides to everything, is playing to win. Now, playing to win is when you wake up and you see the world as your oyster, or you see abundance, you see opportunities. You even... Even when you see a closed door, you imagine that you can open mm. or you imagine that you can actually create another door. Mm. Um, so so I like to to kind of choose the, the positive side of every duality, mm. just like there's good and evil, there's left and right. I like to think, well, how do I define success? And success for me is making sure that I make the most of every day mm. because it's not about a sprint to the finish. It's not yeah. about celebrating when you summit uh, Kilimanjaro, but it's about celebrating every milestone along the way. Yeah, but the issue is for you to not have a scarcity mentality, you should have tasted abundance at some point. And that's a relative concept. But, you know, you can't imagine a, a driverless car yeah. until you've sat in a car. Yeah. So people without exposure, and that's the majority uh, of South Africans in an unequal society and a majority of the world's poor, they are in survival mode because their lived reality is knowing what it's like to not have it. Whereas for the privileged people, 
yeah, you might be cash strapped today, yeah. but it's payday yeah. next week. So you know next week you'll be okay, even if today you're not. So you can imagine yeah. beyond your limitation because you do have those options. You're absolutely right. And I think it is the responsibility of us leaders to, to unleash you know, potential in people, to give them permission to imagine, to create a world where creativity is elevated, to create a world where people are, are given permission to, to, to really pursue the best um, mm. you know, potential within them. Because mm. if we don't unlock uh, potential in every individual, we will never see the South Africa that we actually dream of. When we yeah. talk about you know, our aspirations in the National Development Plan, it's all based on a world that we all aspire to, a world that we want to live in, a world that we can be proud of, mm. where there's enough for all of us, where no mouths go to bed hungry, where yeah. every child is educated, where every person who can work is employed, where every entrepreneur is given yeah. the support, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's not a utopia. You've just described Germany, the United States, Australia, and Sweden. So we're not talking about Absolutely. things that are not real. Well, my favorite case study is Singapore. Yeah. You know, if I look at Singapore, Gosh, a country good. that was started in 1819 as a fishing village, you know, inhabited by just over a thousand people. Fast forward 200 years later, yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, this this survey this that I absolutely love, it's called Country Digital Readiness Index. Okay. It looks at how ready is a country to really uh, take advantage of the digital economy and digital technology. Um, you know, Singapore is number one in the world, mm. and 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 it's it's actually based on a couple of choices, right? And one is about long term planning, mm-hmm. and also it's about um, you know. A, making the choice about the kind of country and society you want to create and doing the work it takes to do that right. and elevating meritocracy above everything else. So merit in the civil service, merit in education. It's being hard-nosed and very strict about you know crime and you know corruption. Mm. It's about merit in small business, in supporting small business. Mm. It's about ease of doing business. You know, it's about investment in infrastructure and all those things. I think are actually accessible um, and are within our reach as South Africa. You've said so many things that I want to break down. So let's just start off with the latter um, and your example of Singapore. And I think I've said this before on Power Talk, but let me repeat it and let me apologize to those who've heard me say this before. Is It's fascinating to me that, shall we say 15 years ago, the world's most valuable companies, just off a cursory look, were companies like IBM, Coca-Cola, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, uh, Procter & Gamble, okay? So fast-moving consumer goods, the oil companies like Total and Shell, uh, automotive companies and the like. Today, the world's most valuable companies, just in terms of what is believed that they are worth and could be worth in future, Tesla uh, and SpaceX, Google, Alphabet, uh, Microsoft. Um, So a lot of the companies that were once dubbed big tech software are the companies that are regarded as the companies of the modern era with the highest valuations. And that's all changed in a decade. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with how technology has changed the way people live and work. Now, if we take the same analogy and we say countries that had the largest economies or were regarded as um, world leaders, 10 years ago, it was without a doubt United States, 
most of the European nations, Russia, and a few of those geopolitically strategic nations. Today, yes, the United States is still number one, but China is a very close second. Yeah. Japan continues to be third. Germany is fourth. But fifth now is India. People don't believe this. India mm. is the fifth largest economy in the world, which is why I always am surprised when people go, look at the poverty in India. I'm like, what are you even talking about? Yes, it's an unequal society, but it is the fifth largest economy in the world. Something that has happened in less than a generation. The Koreas, South Korea's on that list. Australia is now on that list. Brazil is kind of on that list. And the play in all these stories is how they've innovated around technology. You Says know, the World Economic Forum. Absolutely. In fact, I've been to India three times. Absolutely marvel at, at what they do there. And, and I think it talks to the power of a large vision. If you have a big vision as a country, as a leader, and you train all your guns on realizing this vision and making sure that everybody marches to the same drumbeat, that's how you get progress. And when I look at what India does, India produces about 1.2 million engineers every year. Wow. We as a country... 1.2 million? 1.2 million engineers. But then engineers. to be fair, they've got one... Something point something billion people in that country. They do, but but I think <laughs> but I think if we look at if we look at the 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 secret sauce, which is investment in education, yeah. investment in the right skills, ensuring that you elevate regard for education above all else, because with education nobody can touch us as a yeah. nation, right? Yeah. And we produce less than two thousand engineers a year. You know, there's about... Um, okay, so, so I'm going to let you do the maths here because my brain doesn't work that quickly. So, okay, India's got like 1.2 billion people. They're producing 1.2 million engineers a year. Okay, so that's like a 0.1% of their population or a 1% of their population. We've got 60 million people. We're producing 2,000. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, it so shows that's you, less than our... It shows you the gap. Okay. So that's why I, I really, like my, my dream is that we would wake up one day and reappraise how we view TVET colleges. Yeah. We have them everywhere. If you look at the yeah. success of some of the homelands, like, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time in Pupitaswana when I was growing up, and there was this institution called Manpower. Manpower is a TVET college that teaches you artisanal skills. You, you walk out of there ready to start a, to start a business, yeah. right? And those are people that create jobs. In this country, 34% of GDP comes from small business. 90% yeah. of businesses in this country are small business. 52% yeah. of labor comes from small business. So... That's the epicenter of job creation, of economic development. And I don't feel that we as parents are drumming, you know, this message of it's not about just university. It's not just about a degree. You know, you can get into a TVET college and learn a skill yeah. and be channeled, you know, in line with your passion points and you yeah. can really grow the economy. So I think th there's a lot of rethinking we need to do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to see the improvement in the metric results. But I do think that... Yeah. You know, we need to do much more. And there's a lot that, that South Africans can do to turn the ship around. Okay. And at this moment, I'm just going to sound like a government sympathizer. But to be fair, the Ministry of Higher Education has been on a really aggressive drive to raise the profile of TVET colleges because, you know, the numbers don't lie. And the size of the German economy, which has 45% of the labor force being graduates of TVET colleges, and they produce the very best electronics, motor cars, and the like, it's telling. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of what the department is doing there because, I mean, they're also opening up digital hubs in, in the most rural areas because they understand that 
for South Africa to to really come from very lazy 0.4% GDP growth ah. to 4-5% GDP growth, which is what we need to create employment. Yeah. Um, we need to become a a global uh, digital sprinter. And digital sprinters are nations that have leaned into digital technology to help them leapfrog their natural progression. So when we speak about the Malaysias, the Koreas, the Mauritius, the the Singapores of the world, the Indias of the world, it's digital technology. And I think, um, you know, it's encouraging to hear that um, our internet penetration as a country has gone up from like 65% to 74% now over the last four or five years. But we need to get to the 90s. So those things need to be in place. Yeah, I'm just reading here just briefly. Sorry, that's why I took my eyes off of you. Is that Japan, which retains this position as the third largest economy in the world, despite its aging population and all these other metrics uh, that... um, yeah, that should be worrying for the Japanese government. But apparently they've also got a huge emphasis on vocational training. And in fact, whilst they encourage people to be at university, they insist on a practical year in most courses. There has to yeah. be some kind of vocationality exactly. in what you are studying. Exactly. And I think the world is also moving to a point where we're not just looking to create internships for graduates to gain experience, but we're yeah. looking for externships, which is you can actually learn a job from home. You can learn remotely. You okay. know, you can you can get exposure remotely. So I think we need to really just apply our minds to what can we do to to scale? Because internships yeah. literally mean you have a couple of people in the building shadowing you. Yeah. That could be 10, that could be 20. Yeah. But with externships, you could have a million people doing it having a look in from wherever they are as long as they've got internet connection as long as they've got access to a phone and they can get a mentor and 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 that's how you actually scale skills transfer you know so i think we should be thinking about exponential impact as opposed to incremental incremental won't cut it anymore social impact is very very important to you too when you use the Singapore example, and although it's not listed in the top 10 economies in the world, it's always listed as one of the greatest innovators, which is what uh, you referred to earlier on, the World Economic Forum. says so Singapore, South Korea, Australia, then I think the list goes Brazil. And you've listed why Singapore has been able to uh, change the trajectory of the country from small fishing village in the Adaman Sea to innovation hub and a country that has no resources except human capital and you said it's celebrating uh, meritocracy it's not tolerating issues like crime and corruption and it's ensuring that there is alignment between government business and society also in Singapore do you know it's illegal to chew chewing gum on the street I know it's one of the cleanest countries in the world (laughs) Okay, and you've juxtaposed that to a a country where mediocrity is tolerated. And so when you generously spoke about um, lazy South African GDP, uh, some people call it anemic GDP, but South Africa is wallowing in a kind of a um, mediocrity, not just in the GDP figures, but even the quality of civil servants, we see the tolerance yeah. for corruption, um, even though we've seen really uh, encouraging a matric pass rate, the majority of those matriculants don't have a bachelor's pass. Yeah. Mediocrity. Yeah, and I think I think we really need to um, up the game there because, you know, time is, is not on our side. We have 
24% of the world's youth population living on the continent. By 2050, one in three young people in the world will be living in Africa. Young people are looking for economic um, emancipation. Yes, yes, there was a time and place for the National Democratic Revolution, uh, which was about, you know, getting economic, uh, sorry, getting political freedom. And then there's a second phase to it, which is about redistribution so that, you know, we have inclusivity, we have equity. But we, we need to emphasize growth. And that's why inclusive growth is so important, right? And I think for growth to happen, um, we need to be thinking long-term. We need to be thinking that it's about, you know, a sort of collective good as opposed to yeah. individualism, crass materialism, yeah. careerism, and all of that stuff. So when I look at what in, what India and countries like Singapore got so right was, and even even China, they, they cast their net wide and they said, we're going to project four, five hundred hands, a year's hands. Um, so that we are, you know, investing for the long term, yeah. investing ahead of growth and ensuring that everybody in the economy gets right. to grow because redistribution is important to achieve equity, right. but it's better if you do it on the back of growth. Uh, we're going to take uh, the news headlines, but when we come back, I have two questions from you and I'll ask you now. Uh, you then went and referenced Buputa Swana, and I'm like, oh, no, not another one. Not another one. Buputa Swana used to work really well. But just tell us why that is. And then secondly, let's just stay with the India example, because over and above the fact that they've invested so much in education, uh, the outcomes and the outputs are really interesting. All, not all, but most of the CEOs of Silicon Valley big tech companies, Bay Area big tech companies, are all being recruited from India. So they haven't just invested in education. They've invested in the kind of education that means that blue chips across the world now want those skills. So what are those skills they're teaching people in India? You'll let us know in a moment. Perfect. Power Talk, the leadership dialogue. Absolutely. We're having a leadership dialogue with Prof, uh, Professor Alistair Mugwena. Why do we say professor? Well, he's a professor extraordinary of practice uh, at uh, the Northwest University's Business School, a board member of the Institute for Intelligence Systems at UJ. But he's also the country manager, the country head for Google South Africa, but really overseeing the commercial business for Google in Southern Africa. Why are we talking to him? Well, because the future is information, the future is digital, the future is AI, all of which are the innovations happening within uh, an organization like Google. Google uh, said to be one of the most valuable companies in the world. I think the second or the third most valuable company in the world. So increasingly an employer of choice, but even if not your employer, increasingly giving you the tools that you need in order to be a valuable employer. Every day when I give you those quotable quotes, I Googled them. That's what happened. Okay. (laughs) And so it's just become the way we live. And with innovation moving so fast around us, we're constantly wondering what comes next. Just last year, we heard of advanced AI, regenerative AI, chat GPT, then what? And the epicenter will be in some of these big tech companies. And in terms of future employability and employment opportunities, young South Africans are going to have to be finding jobs in organizations like this. And so why not speak to the country head of Google and say, Have we future prepared our young people? As the academic year begins, what's happening at basic education level, 
what's then going to happen at higher education level, what's happening in TVET colleges, are we future preparing our kids? I remember I was told recently we must stop using the term future proof because it's almost as if you need to protect your kids from something. Mm. There's nothing you can protect them from. It's going to happen that future we like it or not. Let them be prepared and empowered for it. So let's future prepare our kids. Professor Alistair McGuenna, um, we have uh, somebody saying, you are not, no, uh, yeses. It starts off this tweet, yeses. Now you're hosting a leader par excellence, a good quality human being whom I had the opportunity of working with as he was our lead strategist at FCB Africa, circa 2014. Who writes circa? Why do people do that? (laughs) (laughs) Circa, I've had to uh, Google, means preceding the date, circa, approximately. Uh, But anyway, uh, it's... It finishes off one of the best among us to lead. He is the epitome of the axiom. Woo! We're going to have to Google that entire tweet. But basically, <laughs> but basically, we're told young talent, best talent, black excellence, sound leadership values. Why do you think people talk about you like that? Uh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's quite humbling to hear someone describe me that way. I think it's important as a person to choose your legacy, to choose um, how you want to be spoken about in your absence. I think it's important to do things uh, the right way for the right reasons, especially when no one is looking. And I think mm-hmm. integrity is just one of those things we should never yeah. trade for expediency. And you made a joke about why Buputaswana. But I think for me, a big part of my upbringing was about being in boarding school in Mafikeng, where it was a black government, black business, black academia, black judiciary, everything was black around me. Contrasted to Pretoria where I was born and I grew up, where we saw apartheid and inequality and racism everywhere. Now, every time I went to school, to boarding school, I would be exposed to a world where people like me were thriving, were leading. And black excellence didn't even become a phrase for me. It was just a way of being. It just, it just said success is accessible. Yeah. If you work hard, if you make a choice that I want to do this. And yes, of course, I've been lucky. I've been privileged. I've had the privilege of coming from a family of educators and people mm. that value education. And luckily they had the means, you mm. know, they made their sacrifices. Mm. They qualified for loans for me to get mm. educated. And I know that that's not, that's not everybody's reality. So I don't mm. want to simplify. But I want it. to interject there on the issue of black excellence. Now, in no way do I want us to condone uh, Bantu stance because Buputazwana was for all intents and purpose, purposes an ethnic creation of a racist government. But be that as it may, it attracted uh, black, the black middle class uh, and many um, Africans in the diaspora who were university professors, doctors, etc. and South Africans who'd been in exile also came to live in Buputatswana. So it didn't matter whether you were talking about bro- broadcasting or uh, the civil service or build projects in engineering or the arts. Everybody was somebody. Yeah. Uh, that taught you something. What is that something it taught you? It, you know, it it's it's it taught us that you are part of the diaspora, and as um, Ernest Hemingway, you know, taught us, um, ask not for who the bell tolls; it tolls for thee. Mm. No man is an island; we're all interconnected. Mm. Your pain is my pain, mm. and we grew up with people from all over the continent, as you say, even teachers from Asia. Yeah. And I think another thing that that I really liked about the homeland model, and it can be applied to many different homelands, yeah. was focus on industrializing every district. So Bubutaswana had twelve districts. 
outside every or in part of every district was an industrial zone that we speak about today that we need to reindustrialize our country. Every district had industrial zone. Like if you take Babelehi just outside Hamanskral, where there were factories producing things, they were employing people, but they were supported by local TVET colleges, i.e. manpower centers and so on. And there were universities and there were mm. hospitals and clinics and there were nursing colleges that were mm. well fed and there were teacher colleges. And, you know, so you, you can see the model was about how do we drive development? How do we drive growth? And how do we keep it in the node where people live as opposed yeah. to encouraging migration? You know, so... I think for me that was a brilliant, um, you know, model that we should emulate, and I know the right. government is trying, but we need to Fast accelerate track. that. Yeah. Okay, I, I I do accept that. India, you've expressed a slight intrigue and fascination in India. Yeah. The number so, of engineers produced, but many of those make it all the way to Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So the vision for India, if you remember, was incredible India, yeah. and that vision wasn't just about a tourism product. You know, like when we say South Africa alive with possibilities, we should we should stretch that to infinity. It shouldn't just be about the beautiful flora and fauna, the beautiful landscapes, mm. the beautiful uh, majestic vistas of our beautiful mountains and mm. rolling hills. It should also be about possibilities within education, within sports, within industry, within service, yeah. within, you know, civil service and so on. Incredible India touched every aspect of civil society. It right. was about if you're going to create an incredible tourism product. Yeah. What does that mean for safety and security? What does it mean for roads? What does it mean for sanitation, access to water, electricity? So, so basic needs, right? It yeah. also spoke to about spoke to technology investment in infrastructure, but also tech adoption. Right. Now, for that to happen, STEM education has to be a priority alongside other you know forms of pedagogy and so on. Yeah. And I think it was really important to ensure that the vision cuts across all parts of society, all parts of government, so that it, it really is the one golden thread yeah. that, that, that propels uh, the nation forward. As a marketer, let me just go back. You've said South Africa Alive was possibility, but apparently that's no longer the brand statement of South Africa anymore. Apparently it's inspiring new ways. And I'm thinking, why fix something that ain't broke, right? If this is a country alive with possibilities, then you harness an environment to do so. But now we are inspiring new ways. Do you think why we've got this lethargy? You know, I think uh, alive with <laughs> alive with possibilities was great because it spoke to potential. But I think at some point you need to transition from unlocking potential to taking advantage of the opportunity, right? right. Because if you perpetuate uh, potential as a narrative, it suggests arrested development. You will mm. always be in training. So inspiring new ways says we are now taking our leadership role. We are reclaiming our leadership role, right? Because we were. The darling of the world uh, post-94, we yeah. were a model of democracy, we were a model of social cohesion, albeit fragile. But we made a commitment to come together and bury the past and, you know, through the TRC, mm -hmm. launder our emotions, process what happened, acknowledge it and learn from it. And I think inspiring new ways is an aspirational statement that says we could be exemplary. But it cannot just be uh, lip service. Mm. We have to put in the work. We have to stem the tide on corruption. We have to be serious about fighting crime. We cannot be talking about gender-based violence. Um, you know, it. We, we have to taste and exercise equality. And we have to create opportunities for everybody. And we can. You know, we have a great economy that's endowed with great minerals. Yes, they, they're getting more expensive to mine because they're getting deeper and deeper underground. But how do we transition uh, our birthright into economic right. progress? Okay. 
So let's inspire a new way of doing things in South Africa. Let's start with that economy you're talking about. So minerals and mining only make up now 9% of GDP. Still a big chunk of um, uh, foreign exchange that's earned, royalties and taxes. But it's a declining sector for all intents and purposes. And you've got to repurpose mines to see if it can fit into another future economy. Green economy, green hydrogen and all those things that they talk about. But the structure of the South African economy today is services related. Yeah. uh, And the majority of those are financial services and retail. So that's really where we are at. And when you ask why are these sectors of the economy sort of the drivers of growth? Well, it's because we are now living in a world where I sit in front of a microphone and I talk and that's considered a job. I'm not in a factory using my hand. Uh, Using my head is considered a job and the technology around me is what enhances the work that I do. Uh, Working in a bank, uh, you can do the physical things, which is counting money, but the machines are there to do so. So now the service is coming up with fintech and tools that aid you to do uh, banking in a more uh, functional and easier way remotely off an app. Uh, Shopping, yeah, you can go to the store and stock up the goods on the shelf or you can order everything online. Service. And all of those services are driven by technology. So the here and now of what drives the South African economy, 60% is services, and those services are underpinned by technology. Absolutely. What is it we're not understanding about preparing people for this economy? Because we still think we are preparing people to go and work in the mines. That's not what the picture is on the ground. So earlier I spoke about Digital Readiness Index. Now it's important for us as a country to have an AI strategy. Everybody knows AI is our, is, our, is our best hope. So we speak about the service industry. Technology can really power us. We could become a, like a, a strong power, powerhouse in the world. India became a powerhouse in the world of um, service because, you know, um, they, they, they're English-speaking country. They're well-trained people with good work ethic and service. Yeah. We have the same. We are the friendliest nation in the world. We've got great weather. We've got great, we're in a great time zone. So service could actually really, really help us. But I think as a country, we're a little bit late. We are working on a digital digital um, you know, readiness uh, pathway. We're working on an AI strategy. And I think for us, there's a couple of things we need to get right. So the basic needs, so improving electricity and water and access to sanitation, all of that stuff is a priority. Ease of doing business, you know, just removing the red tape. And I know government is trying to fix that. Uh, bolstering the startup um, environment. So mm-hmm. how do we bring in technology to help startups um, do what they need to do, especially the adoption of technology to help them realize the SDG goals? Okay. If we talk about you know, agri-tech, for example, how do we ensure that a sector that employs 24% of the labor force can benefit from technology? And mm-hmm. now we're we actually seeing it as Google. We're investing in AI to ensure that we can predict uh, flood, um, yeah, we can predict the migration of locusts, yeah. we can predict uh, the movement of malaria causing um, uh, mosquitoes and so on. You know, we, we can even predict wildfires and actually mm-hmm. warn, you know, communities to kind of evacuate. So all those things are super, super important. And, uh, you know, and, and I think it's important that the country needs to embrace that, needs to make it a priority um, because we can't rely on manufacturing, as you say. We can't rely on mining. I mean, look at look at what uh, uh, the Saudi Arabian, um, you know, nations have done. If you look at Dubai, if yeah. you look at the UAE, how oil has powered other sectors of the economy yeah. because you can't rely um, on, on one trick. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the mines need to provide the capital to um, 
re-engineer a new economy that's got all these other things that you're talking about. And the services need to be underpinned by new generation technology. Very quickly, uh, what do we mean by AI, artificial intelligence? Everybody's like, well, what is this? It's, it's all over the place. <laughs> so, I mean, artificial intelligence is not two or three years old that some people might want us to believe. It's probably about 22, 23 years old. Wow. It's really giving machines and computers the cognitive abilities that human beings have. And, uh, and with machine learning, we've seen computers learning through uh, watching, through observation, and so on. And, 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 and there's a couple of things. If you take a human being, you've got the gift of sight. You can see. Mm. That's called computer vision, teaching a computer to recognize images. Okay. Right? So you train these large language models on images. You give them okay. millions of pictures, and then they start to predict and see patterns. That's what they do. Okay. Then there's also hands and feet. Human beings have that. That's yeah. robotics. That's teaching machines to pick up things, to stack things, and so on. Right. Um, and then there's something about n understanding language and being able to communicate. That's natural language processing. Right. So those three aspects of computer vision, of robotics, of natural langu right. language processing, and the fourth element of machine learning, of course, all of that turns a computer into a much smarter human being. Okay. Now, the challenge is how do we coexist with AI as human beings? How do we ensure that as we drive food security to achieve equality and equity in society, right. we don't replace farm workers with computers, okay. but we reskill and retool those people? Right. I, I, I got stuck on the robotics. So let's just simplify this thing for me. So when I get into my car, I don't ask the car anything. It says to me, are you going to power FM? This is the direction. I would advise you to avoid using Winnie Mandela drive this traffic. Yep. That's AI. That's because AI. having driven this route enough times, it now knows at this time, she's, that's where she's going. Absolutely. Quarter to eight in the morning, if this car starts, that's where she's going. So it already starts to direct me. Yeah. And then it already knows that I don't like the traffic. So it's already trying to find routes that would have less congestion. Sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it Right. So the next phase is when this GPS says to me, why don't I drive you there? And you can sit in the back seat of the car and do something more constructive. And that's actually happening overseas. So if right. you walk around or drive around San Francisco today, you'll see on average 50 driverless cars a day with people sitting in the back and the car just driving and knowing how to avoid accidents. Now, the idea there was, what if we reduce road carnages? by having this car that's got so many cameras mounted on it and it's got AI to be able to predict, you know, uh, when an accident will happen, how to avoid it. I mean, that's that's just incredible. But what, what we're also doing with Google Maps is we're now starting to look at things like safety um, as a criteria for recommending routes because we've seen what's happened with some people have been uh, following a recommended route because it's, it's you know, it's faster. Yeah. It's the quickest way from point A to point B. But unfortunately... Criminals, you know, have targeted some of those people. So now how do you ensure that technology even responds okay. to those kind of issues, right? But now we're also adding a layer of carbon efficiency and not just um, speed and fuel efficiency, but how do we ensure that your carbon footprint is not, is, is not undermined by the route we're actually recommending? In fact, to give you an example, in the aviation industry, 35% um, of the aviation industry's carbon footprint comes from what we call vapor trails. So yeah. if you look at an aeroplane flying, there's always these sheets of ice, uh, you know, just, yes. just behind condensing. the jet engines yeah. and stuff condensing. Those sheets of ice actually trap heat that's supposed to evaporate into the atmosphere. Oh. Now that leads to global warming. Now with AI, with uh, satellite imaging, with flight path data, we are able to predict 
altitudes that have different atmospheric pressure okay. that does not result in vapor trails. Okay. Just by doing that, by working with the aviation industry, you're able to reduce the okay. you know, carbon emissions. Two things quickly, uh, because I see some listeners are now calling through. So two things. All that cleverness has to be programmed by a human being for the, for the computer to be able to do that. So is that part of the training that happens in places like a Google account? The relationship between machines and human beings is symbiotic. One should not replace the other. Machines, actually, that's why we speak about responsible, prudent deployment of AI. AI can be repurposed by bad actors for nefarious ends. AI has to be controlled. We have to make sure that it's useful and not harmful. We need to make sure that we avoid misinformation and disinformation. Okay. And so for a parent listening or a young person listening and saying, oh, I would love to work in the aviation sector, programming systems that tell airplanes how high to fly to avoid the air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. What do they need to go and study at university or do they even need to go to university? So Google gets about three million applicants a year for jobs around the world. So I think people realize that technology is is the future. You you need to understand technology. If you look at education uh, today, education 4.0, there's a big focus on understanding technology, um, on on being a conscientious uh, human being that cares about the greater good, i.e. sustainability. It speaks about personal agency to drive uh, a, a, a an informed social um, citizenry. Um, it, it speaks about, um, you know, people that are able to have empathy. So I think what we're looking at is not just people to go off and study STEM subjects. Yeah. You need to study the arts. You need to study humanity. Because remember, when we even speak about removing language as a barrier to technology adoption, we mean translating the, all the world's 7,000 languages right. so that people are able to access the right. net through language. And you don't need to be an engineer to do that. Okay. And so that's why on Google, I can use a translate function and say, how do I say this in Isizulu in German? Because you found Correct. those human beings. We work with those linguists. Okay. Correct. Okay. And then a second issue I wanted to say, you spoke about the South African economy, more than 60% of it being run by SMEs, entrepreneurs. And the support that entrepreneurs need is really where the issue comes in, to scale up their businesses. I know that Google globally has what they call the Hustle Academy Impact, a $1 billion fund. And you also have um, the Google Startups for Black Businesses, $30 uh, million that's being invested in black-led businesses in Brazil, which has a huge black population, Africa, and also finding those businesses in Europe. Yeah, it's very exciting. So, I mean, with with the Black uh, Founders Fund, we've graduated quite a few businesses across the continent, including here. And those are businesses that are that are referred to as impact tech startups. They're looking yeah. at the SDG goals. How do you drive financial inclusion? The people that we see re- uh, recycling uh, yeah. rubbish on the road, yeah. there's people that have come up with apps to formalize those informal sectors, to connect you know, people that collect uh, cardboard and, and plastic and stuff with people who want to buy it. There's also people who have not been able to access funding because they don't have a credit score. Now there's people who've invented apps to make that possible. So. Yeah, and also with with the Hustle Academy, which is a a digital transformation bootcamp for small businesses. It's a five-day program. We've been running it for two years across Africa. We've graduated about 11,000 small businesses. In South Africa alone, I think we've done about 4,000 businesses. And that's how you transform small business. May I ask you to wear your earphones, please? Tabo and Mami Lodi, we've run out of time. If you can say what you yes. need to say in 30 seconds, I'd appreciate it. Go. Yes, quickly. You know, uh, for our economy to grow, I think the government and the ministers need to work hand in hand with their citizens, you know, mm-hmm. to come and say, no, you have products that we can sell to the world. 
because of those countries like India and China, they 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 have they, they have a market, you know, and then they work hand in hand with 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 government. But our own entrepreneurs in 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 our country, they are struggling to put those products on the shelf so that they they can be sold in South Africa. So it's it's impossible for them to sell to the world. But if we can have that, I guarantee you that the economy of this country will grow. Thank you so much, sir. Sami? Good morning, Lerat. Lerat, I hear you and your guests are talking about digital transformation, tech innovation, especially when it comes to issues of governance. But all of this becomes futile when we've got governments run by people that are allergic, allergic to digital trans- to tech innovations. They're still using paper, paper methods in filing police dockers when it comes to hospital systems. It's just a futile exercise. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. So I guess the, the, the simple issue is we talk the language of, talk, of tech. We talk about the 4IR. Uh, but are we doing it? And I think one of the big issues is I've been told that while South Africa has a big vision, policy we don't actually have legislation and regulation around the internet around startups around the innovation yeah i think there's a lot of legislation that still needs to be developed policies being developed at the moment and i think you're seeing um things like uh, the department of communications and digital technology trying to uh you know connect the whole country making sure that everybody's on the net i think we need to get to a point where the oems the original equipment manufacturers yeah. who make devices bring the cost of smartphones down we need to ensure that everybody has digital literacy at the school level we need to get kids to learn coding and robotics so all these pieces absolutely have to come together but i think the real partnership also lies in how do we ensure that we preserve and grow and create jobs right. in the face of ai okay and the second issue was really about manufacturing and product development but I think it also speaks to brain drain issues so even if we get the very best software engineers coders like India they're going to be snapped up well I think I think the trick should be how do we create an attractive environment for the best skills in the world and not worry about people leaving us I mean if I look at India producing 1.2 million engineers I don't think they mind their engineers going to the US they absolutely love it a it's a great example to those that are coming from behind in India they're saying geez I can see one of my own running Google, for example, but also it says to others in the world, if you want the best skills, go to India. So if we're a net exporter of talent, we're indirectly saying this is a really good training ground. Look at our medical doctors. We know how they get snapped up all over the world. Our nurses, because you go to Barra as a nurse, you're exposed to every kind of, uh, you know, trauma and and you will be taken anywhere in the world. Okay. Okay. So this is a leadership dialogue. We get a sense of how your mind works, but really what is your leadership philosophy? Um, When you wake up in the morning, you spoke about integrity, but when you wake up in the morning, that legacy you're building is predicated on what? It's not about me. I serve a higher purpose. Leadership is an opt-in exercise. It's a life of service. It's about creating a better space, better world for the next person. It's not about me. That Zulu girl's a lucky girl, huh? (laughs) 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 Off air, we spoke about the fact that uh, he married a beautiful Zulu woman from Nongoma. Yes. Uh, and we can see why. Uh, Professor Alistair Mogwena, Country Director for Google South Africa. It's been an education. It's been insightful. It's been a joy. And everything you've spoken to is that we have the excellence innately. It just needs to be harnessed. We don't have to look for it elsewhere. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Absolutely. Hold up a mirror and fall in love with what you see in the mirror. Oh. Alistair Mogwena, Country Director, Google SA. Time for the news. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za.
or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.